0: I'm going to start with a blatant and absolutely shameless commercial that I want to get onto the video. I presume all of you who are watching this later know that this book has now finally been published. This is my um, opus. <laughs> anyway, Swami Kriyananda Light Bearer, available through Amazon and through my own website, Asha Joy, various other places, 700 pages, two and a half pounds of book. 44 years with Swamiji. So far, people really like it, I hope you will too. Okay, now on to what we're dealing with. We are still inching our way through the end here. We have this class tonight and next week. This is now July 16th of 2019. Those of you who find this on the internet later won't care, but we're going to take a, two, a two-month hiatus because uh, I'm in a This same book, did I mention this book? This same book (laughs) has also been published in India, and the publisher wouldn't publish it unless I promised to come over there and help promote it. So I'm gonna go to India via Singapore on July 24th, and I'll return on September 25th. We're just going for a few days to Singapore. It's almost all India. Okay, now we're on number 401 of Conversations with Yogananda. Master says, I met a Catholic monk once who was very devout. I asked him how long he had been seeking God. Many years, he replied. I then asked if he had any spiritual experiences. He was most surprised. When God wills it, he said, he will reveal these things to me. I said, that isn't true. You can have them right now. If you will make the right effort. It is because you pray mechanically that you've had no experience of him. Prayer must be offered with devotion and never by mere rote. I mean, that was that's quite a, a little conversation he had. There's another place where Master persuades a Catholic monk to learn Kriya, and then shortly after that experience, the monk has a deep experience of God. Now, whether this was the same monk or not, we don't know. You know, there's... This whole, um, you you go back to uh, Jesus appeared to the great master Babaji in the Himalayas, and he said, Jesus said to Babaji, my people have forgotten the essence of what I taught. And in that conversation, which takes place both in the autobiography and also in uh, the Festival of Light every week, Jesus says, they still do good works, but they've forgotten inner communion. And then together, united by Christ's love, let us send a messenger to the West who will restore the essential teachings of Christianity. Now, by the end of his life, Swamiji was saying that in a previous incarnation, Master himself was Jesus, which Swami came to slowly and only in the last years was he willing to declare it in a sort of, I have come to believe, it certainly seems to me, I can't help but feel. that Master was Jesus. When I said Swami, to Swami, if that was so, why didn't Master say it during his lifetime? Swami looked at me and he said, can you imagine <laughs> what would have happened if Master had declared that? I mean, it just, it would have made him both vilified and a laughingstock, probably both, and would have done nothing to help his work and done a great deal to injure it. Which is why when Swami asked him if he had been Jesus, Master's response was, what difference would it make? because the work was the work. That being just an interesting sort of piece of it, but but you could see also whatever Master's relationship to the Incarnation of Jesus, whether it was he himself speaking for himself, or as one of our line of gurus, let's say it was him speaking for himself, I can't imagine Swami would have said that as emphatically as he did if he didn't have real understanding that it was true. Swamiji often made statements... Um, that implied a degree of either intuition or direct guidance from Master that Swami didn't flaunt. He, he, He never said, God told me. He just said, it certainly seems to me, you know, or I've come to believe, but I can't imagine Swami making a declaration like that at the end of his life unless he were certain of it. Which implies, did Master speak to him? Did he have a vision? Because Swami never talked about those things. However, so you have that is to my mind an intriguing possibility that every time Master meets a Catholic or someone devoted to Jesus, that he's actually following through as the Guru. Now, whether or not every person who calls himself a Christian has actually created sufficient magnetism to have a real disciples, um, a, a real commitment from the Guru, you know, this is sort of An important part of the guru-disciple relationship, which is not emphasized in some, it's not often emphasized as much as it should be, in the first line of the autobiography of a yogi. Every so often we have autobiography of a yogi trivia contests, (laughs) and everybody gets to sort of see how much they know the footnotes of the autobiography. The first line of autobiography of a yogi. When you ask people to quote it, almost everyone says the uh, salient feature of, I'm not sure if that word is salient, of the Indian culture is the search for eternal verities and the concomitant, and everyone says guru-disciple relationship. But it actually says disciple-guru relationship. Which is interesting that the disciples part has to come first. And this is something I I know in in many different talks I've emphasized that, that the guru is, is... eternally the same and emanates the same vibration continuously so it's not that the guru suddenly becomes something he wasn't in order to take care of us it's that we put ourselves into a into a magnetic field we create enough magnetism within ourselves to draw that commitment because the master when he commits himself he really commits himself so he he can't do it prematurely. He has to do it when the when the uh, field is is pro- is plowed, and that that's our part of it. And that's why we often say to people, you know, don't worry about who your guru is. Become a good disciple, and your guru will come to you. There was a wonderful story. It's actually in my other book about Swamiji, when he was giving a lecture at uh, the Bodhi Tree Bookstore in Los Angeles many 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 years ago. When Satya Sai Baba was still living and was just beginning to become known in the West, and there was a tremendous amount of of interest and energy in America, and people were going to India in order to be to see him or to become his disciple. And this room where Swami was speaking at the Bodhi tree was a large room, relatively large, there, and it had pictures of, of saints, ancient and modern, in portraits on the wall that lined the wall like this. And Swamiji was very well known and popular there. So the room was completely full and all the seats were taken and people were also sitting on the floor leaning against the wall. And so this, this man came in and he came in a little late and he took a seat uh, leaning against the wall. And he Swami began to talk about the guru-disciple relationship which must have been the subject. And Swami was making that exact statement. You know, you don't have to worry about going out to find your guru, if you have the right attitude, your guru will find you. And just as he said that, the picture above the wall of this young man, which happened to be Satya Sai Baba, fell off the wall, flipped, landed on his knees face up. And the the man grabbed it and held it like this, and he told Swami later he had been trying to decide whether he should go to India because he felt so drawn to Satya Sai Baba. He, he wanted to go and be initiated if Satya Sai Baba would initiate him. And right in that moment, the picture comes down and falls right on his lap. I mean, it's hard to get any more explicit than that. And of course, Swami had no concept that that was happening. But in the moment, you know, with all the energy, that's exactly what took place. So when- Je- when Master met you know this Catholic or that Catholic or this Protestant or that one who were all devoted to Jesus, I mean this is how my mind thinks if if in fact he was Jesus in the past, how did he relate to all of that? How did he see it, and how many of those who came to him were from the past who were who who were really devoted, and therefore Master was drawn to them, you think of him visiting Therese Neumann who Master said was Mary Magdalene in a previous life. And that's why she lived through that experience of the resurrection again and again because of the crucifixion and the resurrection, but because she had been there and of course it was the absolute defining reality of her life and Therese had been born as a devout Catholic. I've read, you know, in the autobiography of a yogi you have only this little tiny picture and what you really see is you know, just the extraordinariness of her vision. But uh, I'd read a biography about her, or several biographies about her, and she was a, a, a wonderful, free, joyous, very, I mean, she had a very full life in addition to these visions, and a very full, full and saintly life. And one of her characteristics was that she didn't eat or drink anything. And, uh, one of the stories about her, which is just so charming, they, she used to travel with her friends, they would travel, and she would make so much fun of them because they always had to stop to eat, and then they would have to stop to use the bathroom, and she would just mock them because she was free of all of that. But you know, just even in that little vignette, you get a picture of how natural she was. But they also said about her that at any time, it wasn't just, it wasn't just on those special occasions that she would have these visions. At any time she would just uh leave this plane and go into a visionary state, so part of being with her and travelling with her was that every so often everything would stop because she would she would leave this plane of consciousness and go somewhere, and usually it wasn't until afterwards, but then she would tell them whatever wherever she'd been, what vision she'd been seeing, and it's just it's quite extraordinary so master. I mean, I actually have visited uh, Connors Ruth. I think it's called where her house is, and, and not that many people have gone there from Ananda. Although more are going now, it's way the heck up in in Nowheresville, in Germany. I can't. I don't have any sense of geography, but I believe it's there. It's practically over the border of whatever is next to it. I'm so. I I hate to be so insulting to a country that should should have more respect for, but I have no sense of geography, period. In the United States, I can't tell you where the states are either. I know New York and I know California and Florida because my grandparents were there in Texas because I was born. So this has nothing to do with my lack of respect for Europe. <laughs> anyway, um, but it's it's really nowhere. I mean, it's really nowhere when I went there in, in 1980-something, like 86, 87. So I can imagine in, in 19... Uh, the the 40s when she was there and when Master was there in 1935 it's just nowhere so she chose to be born in this very uh, extremely rural very relatively isolated But she was a very devout Catholic she was very devoted to the church she put the flowers on the church and she was under obedience to the bishop because in in autobiography Master says that she says the bishop has told me not to receive any visitors but I'll make an exception for you But then Master goes into the visionary room and I believe he says something like he went into a superconscious state or something like that. I mean, just think about it. There's nothing else said. And I never heard Swami say anything else. Did Teresa recognize him? Of course, he recognized her. Did she recognize him? Did she know who was in the room? I mean, how would all that work? I mean, as devoted as Mary Magdalene was to him, she would have known who he was. I never heard anybody who knows talk about it. But my goodness, wouldn't one like to know? Just out of, well, really out of sheer gossiping curiosity. But also, for a certain, I'll have to take it more seriously. Like, how does that guru-disciple relationship work when the avatar comes back in another incarnation? I mean, th- these are among other reasons why th- the way we think about these things is not quite so simple. If Lahiri Mahashaya was, was it Kabir in a previous incarnation? If Sri Yukteswar was Lanfranc and he you know, started this Cluny Monastery and there were all the monks who were devoted to him when, he, when Sri Yukteswar reincarnated in India, did those monks come back to him? And then he has another name, so... How does it work then? Uh, I, what that does for me is that I take down my narrow little parameters of what all of this, how this is all organized in some rational way and just take it from the heart. So here's Master and he says, this monk was very devout. But then he also says to him, you know, you're, you're, you're not understanding because you're, you're being so passive in the face of God's grace. I mean, this is partly the monastic life that attempts to transcend the ego by suppressing it, which in uh, the in, both in sadhu, beware, and in a renunciate order for a new age, Swamiji talks about that not really being the most effective and certainly not the most appropriate for Dwapara Yuga. So this monk is reflecting the whole spiritual path that he's part of now, because you do what you're supposed to do. Swamiji quotes, it's in, I believe it's in Crisis in Modern Thought. He talks about um, in whatever time, some, some hundreds of years ago, when the question was asked of the abbot of whatever monastery, if you're in your private devotions and you have a vision of God and it's time for you, the bell rings and you're supposed to go do something else in the monastic schedule should you leave your private devotions to follow the schedule? And the abbot said, of course not. If God is with you, then you should stay with God. That's the whole point. And when the question was asked in, in recent times, the abbot said, of course you should leave your devotions because the monastic rule is your, is your road to salvation. And this is why Jesus appeared to, to Babaji. <laughs> it's because they've forgotten that, that the monastic rule is a means to an end, not an end in itself. So here's Master talking to this monk and saying, you're just being mechanical in your devotions. You need to give your heart and soul to it. It's not automatic. Because see, what happens when you get institutional religion is the institution, this is what makes institutional religion. It's not that you're organized. It's not that you have a membership process or a building. It's when the organization itself inserts itself between you and your relationship to God. You know that you have to be a Catholic or you have to be a Protestant or you have to be a Jew or whoever you have to be because only these people are saved. And then the institution begins to tell you how you qualify. You know that you do these certain sacraments, you follow these certain rules, or you're in the monastery and this is what it looks like. And it's not as if those structures, even in themselves, make it an institutional religion. It's when even you begin to feel if I follow the rules then all these things will happen you become you're not a devotee then you're a merchant or you're a customer I'm going to give you all this and then I'm going to get this in return it was a very touching story from a very tragic story of um, a number of years ago now a soccer team I believe either from Ecuador or Uruguay crashed in the Andes and many people were killed immediately, but a small group of people were not killed, but because the crash wasn't found and it was high up in the snow mountains, everybody assumed that everybody was dead. But in fact, they lived. Partly they lived because they ate the flesh of the people who had died, which they made the decision that that was an appropriate thing to do. Apparently, Catholic theology says it's okay, too. But the the leader of the group when they crashed was the same man who was the captain of the team. And he was their natural leader and they all rallied around him and he rose to the occasion to be the natural leader. There's a book called Alive and there's a few movies about this. It's Actually, even though it's a slightly grisly story, it's actually a very spiritual story and a very deeply inspiring one. It's written, I've read several accounts from different angles. Eventually, two men walked out of the andes and got help and came back and rescued the others so i read about him walking out and about because they all basically were sustained by a spiritual force that was very powerful and it's actually it's a, it's a very moving story so but in this beginning the man who was the captain was the the leader and he was taking care of everyone and making it happen they were all devout catholics just Latin America at that time. That's who they were, and uh, at a, they had a, for a short period of time they had a radio, or they had a radio occasionally. And after they'd been there, they were certain that they would be rescued. But after they'd been there a number of days, it might—I think it was only days, but it might have been a little longer—they happened to have the radio on, and they happened to hear that no one was searching for them anymore, because. Too much time had passed, the conditions were too uh, uh, inhospitable to life, and so they'd given up. Now, the captain had been very strong, but when he heard that the search had been canceled, he completely collapsed. And the way the story is explained, and the man himself must have expressed it, he believed that God would not let them die. But his reasoning for believing that God would not let them die is because they had all behaved so well as good Catholics. They had followed all the rules, and because they'd followed the rules, God would not let them die. And when he realized that God was perhaps very likely going to let them die, he completely lost faith. He just lost faith in everything that he depended on up until that point because it appeared to him that God had broken the bargain. Which which goes back to tell you what was motivating him all along, which was he was following the rules for the promise that was at the end of it. Now, it's it's very, very subtle, but what Master's saying is a mirror. What was exactly the words he uses? Um, Prayer must be offered with devotion and never by mere rote. And, and rote, can you know appear to be engaged but it's different if you're just repeating it and it actually emanating from yourself i i know i've expressed to you in other contexts but it's relevant here a long time ago it would have been the early 80s so now that's a long time ago i had two friends who were episcopal priests in the northwest both of them were also Creobonds. they got interested in this path and uh they invited me to teach meditation to a confab of Episcopal priests who were all men except for me and one woman. Now it would be almost all women. But then it was still men. And I had this... It was so odd to me to be with them. I was much less experienced than I am now and just in terms of... Mm, translating is actually the right word. Because... You know, I I sort of feel things without actually having knowing why I'm feeling it. But I was aware of the fact that I operated from the inside out and these men operated from the outside in. That they were they were good men and they were priests and they were doing their job, but there was something about it that was assumed rather than for me, I never set out to be a spiritual person. I never would have said I was going to be a priest or a minister. And it wasn't merely because I was Jewish. It just never crossed my mind to think like that. I just followed my own inner compelling desire for happiness and for truth. And what do you know? I ended up on a spiritual path. But it was kind of like a surprise. And and the, the path came... Because it matched exactly I mean I, I learned the vocabulary after I had the experience. And in some subtle way all but one of these men, and my two friends of course, but one there was one man who was different. There was about twenty five people there. But they just they they wore they wore their profession rather than it it just coming out of them like they couldn't help themselves. I jokingly I mean I I've joked about when I really realized it was when we had to decide who was going to pray over lunch, and we were all sort of joking because it's like twenty-five clergy people who says the prayer, and we were just making jokes. And then somebody decided he would do it. His com- his complete demeanor changed absolutely. Everything about him changed. "Beloved Lord," he said, sort of like that. That's how I remember it. I thought he was still. I thought he was joking. I really did. I thought he was clowning because we'd been really informal about it all, and I thought he was still clowning. And I started to laugh, and then I realized that he was praying. He wasn't making a joke. And it was like, oh my gosh, poor Jesus must be made so uncomfortable. You know, like, why don't you just talk to him like you were just talking to us? But that was how, now that he was in his priestly role, he had to be somebody other than himself that was when I realized, oh, we're we're working with a different reality here. At the end of the, whatever it was, weekend or days, my, my um, friend said to me, he said, I had the feeling the whole time you were there that you actually, you know, you, your native tongue was different and everything that was said to you, you had to translate through your native language before you knew how to say it back again. I said, that is 100% how I felt. Everything that happened, I had to think, you know, what would they possibly understand of what i could say to try to find a way to put it across to them so they were wonderful men you know it wasn't but that's what master was talking about here this monk had hadn't understood the intimacy of the relationship or hadn't understood the part that he plays in it it was if i just follow the rules and show up where i'm supposed to show up it's up to god to do it But, you know, why would your mother not feed you if you're hungry? And why would you not tell your mother that you're hungry? Why would you just assume that she'll figure it out? You know, that's not how a baby treats its mother. It just wails and wails and wails until she comes. And as Master said, you know, you be the naughty baby for Divine Mother. Just tell her that you're not going to put up with it anymore. Swamiji was talking about some context. I mean, it's an obvious story. But he talked about the baby being taken into the next room and put to bed. And the mother's, you know, a foot away. But the baby wails as if it's been abandoned forever. You know, it just just doesn't know that the mother is so close. And that's sort of, we imagine, we don't realize that the mother is so close to us. But if we practice with devotion, he says, God will come. I'd like to think that the same priest was the one that then learned Kriya from Swami, but from Master, but I don't know. If it was or not, it's all very interesting to contemplate, isn't it? And it's also—I mean—a little paragraph like this. This is Master's mission. You know, this is his revolution. This is why he was born, and and to to dismantle that thinking, and create a wholly other way of thinking. That's why he talked about Divine Mother, because the mother is closer than the father. And the father demands a certain formality and a certain standard. You have to meet the rules. And the mother says, Oh, forget that, darling. Just come here and I'll slip you supper and your father will never know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, that's how the mother behaves. And and that's how we have to... That's the expectation we have to have from God. Which, it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of inner freedom to have that because there's so many parts of us. I, I, I'll repeat here because it's also relevant. When I was in seclusion once... Um, I had this thought when I was meditating because most of the time one thinks about offering and calling to God. And I thought that instead I would try to just be really receptive to God's presence, just allow God to come into me, allow Divine Mother to come into me. And it it was almost physical, the experience was so concrete, that I, I felt the potential of that energy flooding me and I felt the vibration of my heart was um, contrary to the vibration of Divine Mother's love, and it was contrary because I was holding on. In in this case, I realized I was holding on to desires, I was holding on to resentments, I was holding on to you know victim consciousness. Um, I wasn't, I mean, people could be holding on to other things. One could be holding on to a thought of unworthiness, like we act out with the uh, Land of Golden Sunshine, where the little girl Lisa really, the woman Lisa really wants the sun man, but when the light that surrounds him touches her, she feels I'm not worthy to be in this light. So she closes herself off because I, I can't be that good. God doesn't love me like that. So that's another contrary vibration you can set up in your heart. I haven't done enough Kriyas. I'm a sinner. I've done too many wrong things. What I felt was that I was still mad at a lot of people. And I don't just mean like yesterday. I mean my sense of righteous indignation about God knows what (laughs) over who knows how many lifetimes was still very active. And I was not willing to give it up. That was when I came up with the thought. The way it came down to me was somebody owes me an apology. <laughs> and, you know, if you can make it humorous, it helps me. But I just realized I just was holding on to the sense of righteous indignation for experiences that I could not conjure up, for, uh, you know, against people that I don't know who they are. It's not like I could say I'm mad at my mother, or I'm mad at my first boss, I'm mad at, you know, my boyfriend or anything like that. There was no specific, but there was a vibration of rebellion against what the unfairness I thought had been meted out to me. Now, of course, that's completely contrary to my philosophy and to everything that I believe to be true in terms of karma and God's will, but that, I mean, reason had nothing to do with it. I vibrated on that level, and that vibration exactly defined how much I could receive of Divine Mother. Je- uh, John says about Jesus To all who received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. You would think immediately, Well then heavens, for heaven's sakes, let's all receive him. And and you know you try like that. But you can't, um, it's not rote, it's, it's metaphysics, it's, it's, not, it's not dogma, it's not theology, it's not opinion, it's not priestly intervention, it's metaphysics, which is, it's just physics, either, and this is my understanding of physics, either the vibrations match, or they contradict each other. And the extent to which they contradict each other is to the extent to which they can't merge. That's why Master said, you have to give up every desire. Every desire has to be satisfied, is what he actually said. Because anything that you want, that you think will make you happy, that is not just God, will be a vibration and that will prevent a complete merging of our energy. It's 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 both daunting and actually extremely liberating, especially when you add Kriya into it. Because what, what the practice of Kriya does when you consciously run the energy through the chakras and up and down the spine is that you are resolving, releasing, harmonizing all of the karma, all of the vrittis in the chakras and you're bringing them all to the spiritual eye. You're burning them up. You're releasing the egoic grip because the, the vrittis are just whirlpools of energy and it's exactly like a river flowing and water being caught in a whirlpool the whirlpool will continue as long as the whirl of the whirlpool is stronger than the forward movement of the river and it's it's again it's just it's completely objective it has nothing to do with anything except how much do you want God compared to how much you want to hold on to a thought of unworthiness or that some or an, an irateness about the unfairness of how you were treated uh, whatever it might be This has a certain amount of energy, this forward motion motion toward God has a certain amount of energy. If the river goes into flood, all of those whirlpools are just washed away. And the fascinating thing is, you see, they simply dissolve, they cease to exist. It's not like they're sold or, you know, put on the shore. They're absorbed and all their energy is liberated. And when you're doing Kriya, that's exactly what you're doing. You're increasing the flow of the river. That's why when, when we, we talk about Kriya, we talk about and well this is meditation in general. You interiorize the energy, you intensify the energy, and then you elevate the energy. And that what you're increasing the flow of the river to the sea, of your devotion to the spiritual eye, and then all of the vritis, every vritti that is where your commitment to the egoic self definition it represents is weaker than the flow of the river toward the spiritual eye, every one of those vrittis will be dissolved. That's why Master said one Kriya can be the equivalent of one year of right living. Because in one year of right living you would, you would experience that karma externally and you would learn from it and release it. But you, in, in, in Kriya you raise your consciousness to a vibration that's higher than the vritti and then the vritti is just lost. That's why once you start meditating, once you become a disciple and even more so after you start practicing kriya or something like it, um, you just become somebody else and you don't exactly know when it happened. That's the most interesting thing is it's not like there's it's usually not like there's some big emotional release. It's just all of a sudden you find yourself simply not responding the way you responded before. And sometimes it happens that you'll find yourself in some repeat of something that's happened before, but all of a sudden you're behaving so differently. Or you'll, you'll suddenly find in yourself a profound disinclination for people or circumstances or indulgences that used to just captivate you. And because without your noticing it, the flow of the river to the sea got stronger than the egoic hold that that particular reality had on you And because it was just released into the river, you you just didn't notice. There was no big fanfare about it. It's just that when you turn from habit to respond in a certain way, you find that there's no inclination to do so because the vritti is gone. And thus, Kriya yogis especially, or those who practice something like it, because Kriya is very subtle... You just you become somebody else. You just completely become somebody else. I had such a fun experience, and this was in the early 70s. I went with Swamiji to New York City, and we, we, I, we might have even stayed in the house of these people, but at least we visited in them. It was a young couple, and I had been running the kitchen at the uh, meditation retreat, and very often the guests, one of the services the guests did was wash the dishes or help me cook, and this couple had been in the kitchen with me, and it had been two or three years maybe even four years previously. And they'd been there for several weeks and we had all worked together. Now, from the time they were there to the time I saw them, Swami so had mean, changed my name and I believe I'd cut my hair. When they knew me, I had long, this big bush of hair. Now I had hair longer than this, but short. So I had a different name and a slightly different look. And when we were introduced, I said, oh, I know them already. We worked together at the retreat. And they said, really? I said, yeah, I was running the kitchen then. They said, no, that was someone else. (laughs) And I said, no, actually, it was me. It was, you know, we worked and I made some other references. Then they said, no, that was someone else. (laughs) And when they said it the third time, I realized that Divine Mother was joking with me. I said, yeah, it probably was somebody else. (laughs) Because what they were saying is you just don't seem anything like her. Whoever she had been at that point. And I thought, just accept it, Asha. Why are you arguing? Why are you trying to insist that you that nothing has happened in all the intervening years? I've never had such a dramatic or such a humorous indication. But it, it is like that. You just don't recognize yourself because you've changed so much. And this is... I'm coming all the way back to where Master was. This is what Master was trying to say to this monk. Don't just sit there. Do something. You know, put your heart into it. You don't have to just wait. You can... And this is also the other part of what Master's mission was, that's what I was saying. Master wanted it to be Divine Mother so it would be more intimate, and he also wanted to put responsibility for our spiritual lives into our own hands. Because that's also, that's that's Dwapara Yuga, where it's about real energy and consciousness, it's not about form. If it's about form, you just sign up for the church. You know, the Protestants, It's now it's so over that they hardly even talk about it. But I lived through this gradual diminution of what they called denominational loyalty. <laughs> because it used to be, and it may still be true in some more, much more m- different parts of America, but you'd go to town and you'd find the Methodist Church, you'd find the Lutheran Church, you'd find the whatever it was, and you'd, you'd look for your denomination and you would join it. Nowadays, people look for a church that inspires them, if they look for a church at all, which they mostly don't. But they go shopping, and they'll end up wherever they feel inspired. And it's just like f- from 20 or 30 years ago, that was just unheard of. You were, you were defined by what you called yourself. You didn't go look for inspiration. But Masters came, and the purpose of giving us Kriya and explaining it like he did, is it's up to you. Nobody is going to do it for you. And, you know, for some people that's terrifying. And for others of us that's just profoundly liberating. It's just, it's between me and God and that's what really matters. So he's, tr- he's trying to get this monk to understand this. Don't do it by rote. That's not how you get there. You have to do it with your whole self. So we hope he listened. There's no follow-up. <laughs> All right. Is there any question or comment about that? All right, then number 402. It is difficult to find one's way out of a labyrinth. When you enter it, you may think, oh, I'll find my way out easily, anytime I want to. But each time you think you found the way out, you are only led into another blind alley. You need what Theseus had, Theseus of the Greek legend, who slew the minotaur he, Theseus went into the, the Minotaur was at the heart of the labyrinth and he went into the labyrinth and slew the monster which other people had tried to get in there but they would just get lost and then the Minotaur would find them and eat them. But Theseus I believe he would eat them he would do something really awful to them in any case. But Ariadne who was the, one who, the woman who loved Theseus gave him a thread to unreal as he was going in. That thread enabled him to retrace his steps back out. That thread symbolizes the guru's advice and your inner attunement with him. Even mental attunement will suffice to lead you to freedom. By that sacred thread, you'll be led by God's grace. When Master says even mental attunement, I've read that phrase before. I think what he means is um, inward attunement. You know, the word mental is sort of an odd thing there, but meaning you don't have to be with the guru personally. You don't have to hear his words. I'm, I'm nearly certain that's what he means by that. You can attune, you can receive his thoughts without having to have his physical body in front of you saying the words. Because, of course, many, many people don't. And many times, even if the guru speaks, you don't hear him because we just, we're just we so original in the way we think about things. And our, all those vibrations keep us from receiving it. So that thread symboli- symbolizes the guru's vice and your inner attunement with him. Even mental attunement will suffice to lead you to freedom. It's just such a beautiful idea, isn't it? And this again puts us all back right where we started with this all of this the disciple guru relationship. You know, the image of holding on to a thread, you know, just wherever you go and that Master and God and Guru are holding on to that spool and they're just letting you play play it out, but they never let go of it. I used to always think I still do. I mean, when Swami died, I was a little concerned because, as I put it, he always held the end of my kite string. And so no matter how far I went, he was always holding on to it. And I became concerned that without him physically, they're holding the kite string I might just keep sailing. And that was not... Not that I would leave the path, but I would become very confused trying to get out of the labyrinth. In fact, we get much deeper into it. Um, and and it has been, I mean, it has to be honestly said, the the because I haven't lived in the same community as Swamiji since 1987, and since 1998, I haven't lived on the same continent that he's lived on. So it's not like... He's always there, but of course, between telephone and emails and all of those things, there's been. He's he's been. A, he was when he was physically alive. He he was an intermittent presence. That there would never be more than a few months without some interact. I mean, there would never be more than a few days without some interaction, but there would rarely be more than a few months without some um, in in person. He would either show up in California, or I would go to wherever he was and it was it was not a small adjustment over and it took more than a short period of time to to really integrate into my spiritual life the fact that that wasn't going to happen automatically because it had been like almost like you might call an automatic reset because it would just i would just go into his vibration i would forget everything that i was worried about You know, I would get my marching orders for the next cycle of time, whatever it was, just everything would come back together. So, you know, time passed, and it wasn't as dramatic as sailing off into the wild blue yonder, but nonetheless it was exceedingly real, that it had been automatic. And, you know, Swamiji himself, he he never talked about it very much, and I've mentioned, it's like... He, his relationship with Master was so living, and so vibrant, and so in the moment, that it was easy to forget that he was with Master for three and a half years, and he wasn't even twenty-six when Master died, and that we're meeting him in his seventies and his eighties, and the relationship is as as if Master were in the next room, but that was a that was a powerful deliberate act of will on Swami's part. It wasn't just a a sort of passive allowing it to happen. Master disappeared. And he disappeared more or less without warning and way earlier than certainly than Swamiji expected. He and Master were planning to go to India. I mean, you know, Swami had this in his mind. He's going to go to India with his guru and they're going to have this experience. You know, he's read Autobiography of a Yogi. He knows what happens when Master goes to India Richard Wright accompanied him on that trip. Swami's about to com- accompany Master on another, and instead, Master leaves his body. So there had to be a powerful, deliberate act of will uh, on the part of a very young man and a very young disciple. Now, of course, Swami was always who he was, and Master showed his faith in him during his lifetime, but still, you know. But, but what, when we, we have to get this image in our mind, that master is holding the other end of this of the string and that the most important thing for us to do is to not let go of that and that's where master says even mental attunement which is to to recognize to those who think me near i will be near that was it was swami who asked him will you be as close to us after you pass as you are now and master said to those who think me near i will be near i just there it is, to all those who received him, to them gave he the power. And then to the Catholic monk, he says, you don't have to wait. It's it's really up to you. And, and that's where Master puts responsibility for our spiritual lives in the one place that it belongs, which is right in our own hands. Master finishes that by saying, the only place that God can be experienced is in the human nervous system, which is the strangest quote to me the spine is the highway to the infinite. I mean, it's it's so physical for something that you don't think of as physical, but it's also extremely graphic. It's like it's not in the church, it's not in front of the priest, it's not in the confessional, it's not in front of the pujari, it's not with the mantra, it's in in within yourself. You know, by moving the energy within your own consciousness, the human consciousness can perceive God. If, we create the magnetism to draw him, and don't let go of our end of the thread. Well, let's take a few minutes, then we'll see what comes next. During the break, which some of you heard, if you're watching it live on Facebook you heard it, and if you're looking at the recording later you didn't. We're just making things not match now. Um, there was a question submitted from somebody watching live, and they wanted to know. they wanted me to talk more about what it means to receive what it feels like what what we're really talking about huh so um let me just try to think about it for a minute because john's promise is tremendous to all who received him so there's many levels of receiving receptivity is one of the most important qualities on the spiritual path um it that comes from saint john's comment but it's also it's also a fundamental teaching of discipleship. I know when my parents were ill in the last years of their... When my parents... My mother had Parkinson's when my parents went through the last years of their life. um, I was talking to someone about this earlier. uh, I didn't quite know what to pray for them. At first I tried to solve... At first I tried to impose my will on their lives and that was not a really good idea. (laughs) was, a, in fact, a really terrible idea. Um, and then I tried to support them in whatever they thought was the right thing for their lives, and that worked a lot better. But I also felt that I needed a proactive prayer for them rather than just sort of passively allowing whatever happened to happen, because from my perspective of the spiritual path, I felt that I had something to offer them. From my years of discipleship, I felt that prayer was a really good idea. So the prayer I came up with is, Divine Mother, whatever it is you're trying to teach them by the karma that they were living through, and the prayer was give them the receptivity, the wisdom, sometimes I would say the humility, and the devotion to learn it. Because that was actually what I wanted. I didn't want them necessarily to live longer. I didn't necessarily want them to overcome their illnesses or change their attitudes. I just wanted them to learn whatever they were supposed to learn, that that actually has been a marvelous prayer that I've used. I discovered it with them, but I've used it continuously. Because sometimes you want people to stop suffering, but you don't really want them to stop suffering merely to have the suffering stop. You want them to learn what they have to learn, so that they won't have to suffer again. That's what you're really asking them. Swami Kriyananda said when he was growing up as a child in Romania... They didn't have Novocaine. The dentist didn't have Novocaine because it was rather primitive there. Maybe they didn't have Novocaine at that time for anyone, but in Romania they didn't. And he had colitis, and therefore he didn't get any calcium. And as a result, he had a lot of problems with his teeth, which plagued him to the end of his life. But But when the doctor would have to drill without Novocaine, as a child he would scream. And the doctor would only drill so far, so he he filled a lot of teeth with decay underneath it, which of course caused him much more trouble later on than if he had just persevered through the screaming and done the job properly. I mean, the whole thing gives me the willies, but anyway, there you have it. Um, But that's, I realized, what we do a lot of the time. We pray for a particular outcome, and that outcome is generally that we want things to be less difficult, less painful. We don't want to see the people we love suffer. And it's inconvenient for us when they suffer, or or many different things. But you have to stand back and ask yourself, do I just want th- to put a filling on top of the decay or do I want the decay to be drilled out of them so they won't have to suffer again? Now, This is not quite the answer to the question yet, but let me just finish this. Uh, from 1986 until about 2006 um every year or every other year we'd take a group of people to india mostly americans and mostly people who'd never been there before mostly people who'd never been outside of the whatever the euphemism is for now the developed world and especially in the earlier years when india before india itself began to rapidly run into the into dwapara yuga you just would see a lot in india that you wouldn't see in America you still do just different people incarnate there like we used to stay at the Grand Hotel in Calcutta this luxury beautiful my favorite hotel the Oberoi in Calcutta and and you could actually watch people living on the street you could stand in your beautiful air-conditioned room with your marble bathroom and you could watch the families and we would stay there for several days and so people would get to know the families that lived on the sidewalks right below their street right below their hotel room and uh Many Americans really had a hard time with poverty, with beggars, with um, disease, and so on like that. And they, they just would become panicky about it. And I gradually began to understand that people's ability to observe the suffering of others, and poverty, as, you, as we saw, was a, form, a very powerful form of suffering, people's ability to calmly observe suffering in others was directly related to the degree to which they had accepted the necessity for suffering as the path to growth in their own lives because people's responses were wa- varied so wildly i was trying i had to work hard to understand what is the difference but that's what i began to see and the more i myself understood that we grow through suffering the more i i wasn't freaked out that other people were suffering it's not that you enjoy it, it's not that you don't want to alleviate it, but you also understand it's purposeful. It's going somewhere now, the question was what is it to receive God but it's this is actually all part of that because what it is to receive God is to accept to recognize God's plan to not be in rebellion against the way things are um we could, it there's, there's a, a profound mystical element to it, which I was talking about earlier, the vibrations and the Kriya and all of that. But there's also just... Um, in, in our Festival of Light, we have this analogy, uh, an analogy, is that the right word? Allegory, that is the story of this little bird. And that bird's brief day was like eons of our time. And the bird goes through four stages, or he, four stages are described. The first, he's sent out on a mission from God. You are God's child. You are to be his instrument. Be fruitful and multiply, and what you acquire, share with others. For you are a part of all that is. Share with others just as we have sh- I have shared with you. But then the little bird gets out there, and it starts enjoying its own power. It discovers that it has power. It discovers that it can fly, it discovers that it can acquire, it discovers that it can influence, and it begins to think how how foolish I would be to share what I have with others. You know, what is wisdom if not to keep what is mine for myself? And that's just like, that's what happens. We begin to experience our own power and we begin to enjoy it. And you know, that's the beginning. And so the first stage is the mission, which is we're sent out from a mission on a mission from God, and the rules are pretty simple. But then we discover our own power, and we start enjoying that power, and then we go into the second stage, which is called the revolt. And the revolt says simply, Oh, I think that God's plan is not right. I actually I actually know what is right. And I, I, I'm going to tell, I'm going to say, that this is what we should all be doing. And you should do what I say, because I know what's right, and you should do it. You, my son, you, my husband, you know, you, my mother, you, my employees, you, climate change, you, the Democrats, you, the Republicans, whatever it might be, I know what's right and I need you to conform to it. And we're no longer asking, you know, we're we're no longer trying to attune to a greater reality and be an instrument of a greater reality, We we are declaring, we are in revolt against a a truth that transcends my own interests what else is wisdom if not to keep what is mine for myself and that's what all human beings apparently do because that's what we get into so this is like eons of our time and then what happens is and, and even though the bird sticks to its plan even though repeatedly it lost everything it had you know and so it's not working but it takes us a long time to notice that it's not working. We just keep declaring that it must work. So I was talking earlier about the vibration in my heart when I tried to merge my consciousness with Divine Mother, but I still believe that vengeance is mine. And not, you know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, but no, I think vengeance is mine. I am going to declare that this is what I want. What else is wisdom if not to keep what is mine for myself? I'm going to keep my self-righteous position. I'm going to keep my my anger. I'm going to keep my victimization. I'm going to keep my hurt feelings. This is mine and I'm going to keep it. And I'm going to find happiness by doing this. And this is called the revolt. And that revolt, is, is it, it, you can't merge. Because it's trying to be itself the infant is trying to be itself and we're vibrating in a different way we've separated ourselves out so then after a while we just get broken enough times and this is why I say I pray about my parents you know whatever it is that they're trying to learn help them to learn it because you know they're suffering or or they don't look as comfortable as they used to look But uh, the purpose of this, I know there's a reason. So help them receive the lesson behind this experience. Because then they'll be able to be free and they won't have to see this karma again. It won't do any good just to stop it. That's why healers who have the power to actually change someone's physical reality gradually learn that just because they can, they shouldn't always do it. And there's stories told of visionaries who said, you know, Jesus didn't heal everyone. Some people he just comforted because it wasn't helpful to heal everyone. So it wasn't helpful for that person. So the second thing comes, after the revolt comes the quest. And the quest is where we begin not to declare what is true, but we begin to ask what is true. And I, I always put it like this. Instead of saying, God, why did you do this to me? You say, God, why did you do this to me? It's just a, it's a completely different attitude. Like, why is this happening? And I really want to know. And then you can begin to receive. Because we actually receive exactly in proportion to how much we want to. And so, you know, when, when we're... There's, there's, a, um, there's just a genuine interest that develops, that we're not really trying to prove our point or get our way. Um, And sometimes it, it causes us to be very unhappy. We have to actually take responsibility. We have to actually realize that I probably, you know, this is right for me. Whatever it is, all these people being mad at me, being utterly betrayed by people I trusted, losing all my money, not having my health, you know, having being estranged from my children, whatever the long, terrible stories are, having people I love die. Which all of these things happen in this world. There's either revolt which then there's no way for a higher understanding to come because we're so busy pushing out that we can't receive anyone, we're just mad. But the quest is not the same as the realization. But it's the beginning of being able to receive, because if we never ask the question, that it doesn't matter how many answers there are, we'll never hear them. And the, the, the humility is the first part of it, which is, huh, I just don't really know. I just don't know why this is happening. And lots of things happen that, you know, the quest is really useful. And, and we watch ourselves go between the revolt and the quest. And and it's a, it's like be, between being a Vaisha and a Kshatriya. A Vaisha is a merchant. I've done all these things for you, Lord. You have to do these things for me. Kshatriya says, what is right, what is true? I will discipline myself to the truth. And I'm not looking for self-interest now. I'm disciplining myself to the truth. It's the same as the quest. What is the truth here? And then we move to the fourth stage, which is where the, the avatar sacrifices everything for the sake of humanity. Here then is the fourth and last stage in the soul's long journey from a life of infinite joy and freedom in God, willingly to embrace limitation, pain, and death for the salvation of others. Such ever has been the sacrifice of the great masters for the world. The next sentence is here then is the fourth and last stage. And we don't always quite get what that means. I mean, I've been reading this festival for 30 years, so I think about it a lot. It's when there's no self to protect anymore. I mean, the, the full realization of that is the avatar, that there's no sacrifice is too great if it will help others. And we're back at the beginning, which is whatever you have, share with others, because you are a part of all that is. Just as your Divine Mother shares with you, you share with all Divine Mother's children. And in the revolt stage, you think, but how could that possibly make me happy? How could it possibly make me happy to sacrifice everything? But in the fourth and last stage, the masters willingly sacrifice everything. Master in his poem says, I will return again and again a trillion times if necessary with bleeding feet crossing crags of suffering. I mean, it's such a, you know, an intense promise as long as one stray brother is left behind. And our egoic self just we don't even know how to think about that, the Swami himself said, such such compassion, such concern for others is just literally unimaginable to us, so then you have to go back to the quest, my how is it possible to feel like that, and how can I possibly make myself capable of that so this comes back to receiving, and the the other part of that is that and this is what the masters are always saying to us, we don't really become something we are not, we just cease being what we are not. It's like the sculptor who carved an elephant out of the stone. How did you do that? You said, well, I looked at the stone and I took away everything that didn't look like an elephant. <laughs> and, and that's sort of what it is with us. We have to take away everything that doesn't look like a saint, that doesn't look like a God-realized master. And as soon as we take away what doesn't look like a God-realized master, then we become a god realized master because we we merge with the infinite in that way so going back to the actual question i know what it feels like not to receive and then i also know what it feels like to receive but not to receive is always it's always somebody's fault when you're not receiving there's just always this i was very upset about some things that happened over the last few months and i described myself as having long conversations with people who weren't in the room <laughs> <laughs> long, rather self-righteous conversations with people who weren't in the room. And I would just see myself doing that. How can I receive truth when I'm so busy making, trying to make the world conform to me? That doesn't mean there's no place for thinking or thoughts like that. But I actually, and I, I don't know whether it was here or somewhere else, I said this, one of my friends, Karen, told me that I, when my mind started doing that, I should sing. She specifically told me I should sing Little Kathy Went Dancing. But it was the darndest thing. As soon as I started singing out loud, Little Kathy Went Dancing, Went Dancing, Went Dancing. It's a particularly silly song. I mean, there's no big, deep philosophical. It's, it's a great song, but it's a very lighthearted song. It's classified under the children's songs. Um, I became, I got into the now. And I got in tune with the vibration, the joyous, free vibration of that song. And I would just watch. All of a sudden, from being over here and being, you know, what else is wisdom except to keep what is mine for myself, I was suddenly in tune with this little girl, just everyone should be dancing, it's part of God's plan. And I, the word would have to be, I received that vibration. I received it by singing. But as soon as I started singing, I was in tune with that. And it was just so interesting to me. And then I would finish the song and I would go back to those conversations and I would remember I was having them and I'd come back like this. So receiving is attunement because we um, we don't create it. We just align ourselves with it. And so it's always, it's always an option. That's the most extraordinary thing about it because we always have a choice of consciousness. We don't always have the freedom to choose, because our vrittis hold us captive. But we, but we, so we have to, we have to work with ourselves to develop the freedom to choose. But the choice is always there, and it just what it feels like to receive is really happy. <laughs> it just is if you're receiving the presence of God. Everything else just goes away. We are nothing but a vibration of consciousness. We are so persuaded that we are a fixed reality. We are not. As Swami once said, the only difference between the worst criminal and the greatest saint, as he said, is the way they behave. <laughs> if the worst criminal stops behaving like a criminal and starts behaving like the saint, he becomes the saint. I mean, I mean it's as, just as fluid as that. And so that's what we have to realize about ourselves. We are what we attune to. That's it attuned to something else, and you receive something else. You become that. To all who received him, he he gave the power to become the sons of God. It's a phenomenal promise. And Swami transferred it into the festival of light, so that every week we would say it over and over again, until gradually we would believe it. And when our vrittis try to persuade us that something else is true, we... We've, we will have answered that question often enough. That we'll say, "No, I don't think so." I'll end with this. Once, when I I was caught up in this very complicated interpersonal situation, and people were suffering a lot, and I was trying to sort of carry the story forward, and everybody was suffering, and I just I went out into the out by myself in my car in the dark, and I just started weeping. I just couldn't handle it anymore. Because everybody else was suffering, and I couldn't see any end to it, and <laughs> came in my right ear, a voice said, "Do you think this could be happening outside the will of God?" And I feel like that voice kind of just you know tunneled through my brain, so i'm weeping and weeping like this, and then this voice said, "Do you think this could be happening outside the will of god and it, i mean, I'm leaning over the steering wheel it's like, "Oh, fooey <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> i'm just i've just been having this." huge emotional experience and now I can't keep having it <laughs> because I know of course it was happening of course it was the will of god how could it how could anything not be so even in the midst of that I received I received my own training is what I received but I was still very unhappy and so I th- that well I didn't come up with the prayer at that point but I said, okay, then, God, if you're going to, you know, I need to tell you that I really can't handle much more of this. I don't know how they're doing, but I'm going down. I can't handle this anymore. So, you know, for my sake, you've got to do something about it and you've got to do something soon. And half an hour later, the whole situation shifted. And now that doesn't always happen. But it was still like, you know, okay, this is your will, and I just want to register my strong disapproval—I <laughs> very strong disapproval—and also want to warn you that if you're counting on me, you know, we're pretty much at the end of our tether here. It was still true, but I couldn't. It was—it was the will of God, and I knew it. And that's how it works. You just persevere. You pull yourself back, time after time after time, no matter how far you slip. You just You stay on that quest. You know, when you you fall into the revolt and then you stay on that quest. And and it just begins to change you, that's all. Okay, any comments or questions before we call it a night? Okay, we covered a giant two of these. 401 to 402, thank you. You have done 111 classes. (coughs) (laughs) I thought we might end at a tidy 108 but we didn't (laughs) and we'll go probably have to go into next year yeah okay thank you all bless you